Hi, this is Sean Parker with another episode of Fill in the Blank. Today we have a very, very interesting guest, a fellow by the name of Joel Miller. Joel is a native of, of originally Wyoming, but grew up as the, the main bulk of his life in Worthington, Ohio. Has a degree from University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, so top, top ACC degree. And he is a, a chemist or has a chemical background, Bachelor of Science in Chemistry, multiple certifications. And I came across Mr. Miller at an event that he was talking to folks about the relevance and the safety of wearing masks as we know them in the public environment and whether or not they work well. And normally we have a lot of conversation with people. You hear the chatter, hey, mask, no mask. But we don't get a lot of information. We don't get a lot of detail. We don't really have the science behind it. And Joel was, was bringing us a lot of science. So I thought this was a great opportunity to hear from his perspective and his background. And I think you'll be very interested to hear who he is and what his experience is as to the efficacy and the value of wearing masks in a social environment to protect yourselves from a number of things, including nuclear waste, biological waste, or attack, or chemicals, things of that sort. So with that, welcome Joel Miller to fill in the blank, and we're very happy to have you. So tell us a little bit about why you are doing what you're doing to educate people. Yeah, well, well, thank you for having me. Normally, I don't speak in public too much about things like this. However, I have three young boys that were going to school at New Albany, where I currently live. And, you know, last year when this pandemic hit, before we knew much about this virus, there were mask mandates. And, you know, my youngest, which was in kindergarten at the time, had to go in and out wearing a mask every day. I could see how uncomfortable he was with it. You know, he actually had scars behind his ears from the latches that hold the mask on. Oh, wow. And, and you're wearing it, you know, eight hours a day. And me, when I get into what I do for my profession, I understand uh, how taxing it can be on an individual, even to wear something as simple as a cloth mask for an extended period of time. Mm -hmm. So once we realize that these cloth masks are ineffective, especially as they relate to COVID, mm -hmm. and they still try to push these mask mandates... I got involved, okay. <laughs> and, and, and the school didn't want to at first mandate masks, so I'd go into the Board of Education meetings and give some talks to the uh, school board to try to convince them to stay strong. You know, ultimately, some of the people that push for radical agendas in New Albany convinced the school board out of fear that they ought to mandate masks. Okay. So I lost that case, but I don't think it was as a result of trying. So it's, I mean, this is a big question right now. We have a Delta variant out, a mutating virus that is affecting, I think yesterday's number was 7280, was, was the number of people who contracted the virus. We no longer publish, or it's very difficult to get full detailed analysis of numbers of people hospitalized, number of people deceasing from it, things of that sort. We've ne we rarely see the complete picture, which is concerning to me. But I do know that there's a, a, a virus on the loose, so to speak. With that, let me go into a little bit more of your professional history and experience, because I think we have to really qualify who you are 
and what your experience is and some of your certifications so people understand who you are and what credibility levels you bring to this conversation. So tell me a little bit, I know you have a, a what's called a HASWOPER certified trainer certification. What, what is HASWOPER? Yeah, so, so HASWOPER is under the Code of Federal Regulations, uh, OSHA, the o- o- Occupational Safety and Health Act, requires that anyone who deals with hazardous waste in the work environment to have different types of training. One of the most common and, and extensive trainings is what's called 40-hour HAZWOPER, and it stands for Hazardous Waste Operations and Emergency Response. Okay. And so as a, as, a, as, as a person that does emergency responses for hazardous materials, that's one of the trainings they require you to have. Now, I've had so many of those trainings because you have to renew it every year through an eight-hour and then through other experience and, and my chemistry degree. There's some specialties that I add to that training, so that's why I'm allowed to call myself a hazmat chemist. Okay. Whereas typically, without the additional chemistry training or something like that, it's just regular hazwap or you'd be a hazmat technician. So, so going into that, uh, maybe going into a little bit of my background, mm-hmm. when I got out of school, I started, my first job was with El Paso County Environmental Services. Okay. All I knew is I didn't want to be stuck in a lab. Yeah. So I started working on the environmental side. I was responsible for basically all of the county's waste, so the DOT operations, illegal dumping. But I wasn't there for about six months before methamphetamine became a huge problem in Colorado. Okay. And I could go into a long story as to why methamphetamine became an issue, but essentially there weren't laws preventing the sale of, of large items and, uh, that you can get from like Costco or Walmart or Sam's Club. Mm-hmm. that would help you make it at home. There was a biker chemist out in California in the 1980s that published a book that taught, uh, basically online, that taught you how to cook methamphetamine using two different methods. Once that was published, it went worldwide. And so every mom and pop would use this same exact recipe to cook methamphetamine at their homes. Not necessarily for resale, but for, you know, consumption. Oh, wow. They, okay. They, they would make enough to, to sell enough to be able to buy more of the chemicals so that they can use. But it wasn't really, you know, the large Mexican nationals and things like that that cooked in the woods and things like that, you never really caught those guys. American ingenuity. It's Prohibition 101, right? That's People right. want to figure out how to do bad things. Exactly. Wow. So, so anyways, long story short, there were over 500 busts a year in 2002 in El Paso County alone. And that's just south of uh, Denver, the largest county in Colorado. They had three vice narcotics and intelligence teams working around the clock to bust these things. And the problem were officers were getting sick and hurt when they were going into these meth labs. Meth itself is bad, but the chemicals that go into making methamphetamine are even worse. Okay. You know, for example, if you dry out the cooking process during the red pea phase, you can create phosphine gas. And everyone knows phosphine gas. Well, it's, if they don't know, it's a chemical weapon. Yeah. It's what was used in World War I and, and whatnot. And then, and then if you're cooking it, what's called the Nazi birch method, you're using anhydrous ammonia. And anhydrous ammonia can cause pulmonary edema if you breathe it in. It's a very deadly gas, even in small concentrations. So wow. because of this issue, the hazmat team was ran through the sheriff's office in El Paso County. Normally, it's ran through fire departments. But in certain counties, it's ran through sheriff's departments. 
I think it was ran that way in El Paso County is because of all the military installations. Oh, okay. You that know, would make sense. Yeah, yeah. You, you've got the Air Force Academy, you've got Fort Carson and, and an Air Force base. And so I, I think they wanted their responders to be armed also. Okay. So anyways, they were getting sick and some of them were getting hurt uh, as, a, as a related to chemical exposure. And they came to me with my chemistry. They say, don't we have someone in the county who works, who works for us that has this degree that can help us? And even though I told them, hey, you know, we didn't cook meth in college, I could probably figure it out. So I went through a couple of trainings. Next thing you know, I was running around with VNI on all the bus, helping keep it officers safe, training them as to what the chemicals are, what to watch out for. They'd have me come in when there was an active bust and basically turn on or off the chemicals if they were cooking during that process when they, were, when they, when they entered. So, because that's probably the most dangerous point when it's an active cook. Okay. Because, for example, I mean, if you don't, if you don't keep, you know, kerosene, you, you know, or, or if you don't keep the... Actually, the, I don't know. I never did this. That's, but. that's, that's true. That's true. <laughs> I just have to... Right. No, that, no, no, that's good, though. This is... Yeah. So, so I've got, yeah. I mean, I've got a couple interesting stories there. I'll tell you one, just yeah, to give please. you an example. Is, uh, so uh, before they did a bus, V&I, to keep things secret, they wouldn't include the hazmat team until last minute. So 24 hours before a bus, they'd call us in. And, and at least a couple of us, they'd say, hey, here's what we're dealing with. This is what you need to be prepared for. Because it was our job, when they went in to, to do the bus, they would secure the site, get the people out, but then they would call us in right away to help secure the chemicals. Okay. And then we would go ahead and hire a private company to come do the actual cleanup, but we would take care of the immediate emergency. And that included also deconning some of the personnel they took out because they were off-gassing so bad from the chemicals. Deconning meaning decontam- decontaminating them so that they're safe? That's they're right. Closed? Okay. That's right. We used to pop, use pop-up showers and scrub them down with wands. And, and I'll tell you, some of these people look like Holocaust victims. You remember that movie Silkwood? Oh, yeah. I mean, it sounds like Silkwood with, wow. Yeah, okay. it was interesting. So, so we would meet the day before, and, and there was a specific bus that still, I still remember to this day. We, we nicknamed it Mini Waco. So it was in eastern El Paso County, and, which is basically flat, no trees. You know, there's no hiding out there. Okay. And there were five trailers on this property. They had signs outside that said government agents will be shot. There was a double homicide there years back. And I guess an undercover agent had gotten enough information to get a warrant to go do a bus. They were cooking meth in all these trailers. Wow. So they brought together a bunch of hazmat teams because they realized there's no good way to sneak up on this. I mean, they had sniper posts, you know, dug out of the ground there with concrete pillars and sandbags and things like that. So they were expecting a lot of resistance on this. Mm. And there's no good way to sneak up on it. Yeah. So we all met at a middle school and we would hang back or at the middle school near, near the site. And the hazmat team would hang back as SWAT went and did the initial bust. And then they would call us up as soon as they needed us. And we have the radios going the whole time. Mm-hmm. So they get in there and luckily they caught most of the people sleeping. They went in at 6 a.m. and they'd been watching the house all night. Smart. And they met little resistance at first, a couple of squabbles. And then supposedly they got everyone out. Well, they called me in because there was an active cook going on in, in the main house. And so I go up there and the rest of the hazmat team's kind of, kind of laying back. And I start going in and securing the chemicals. I mean, the stove was on, but luckily there was enough liquid still in, in, in the pot that they were using where I just had to put a lid on it, turn off the stove, you know, disconnect some of the, some of the anhydrous ammonia tanks that they had in the propane bottles and whatnot. So I'm securing things, and then all of a sudden I start hearing shooting. Uh, oh. So I hit the deck, 
what happened is one of the, they must have missed somebody in one of these trailers. He was okay. hiding. Wow. He came out, started shooting out the window, and they pumped so much OS gas into that trailer that through my mask, and I had a full face respirator on. What's OS gas? It's, it's what they use for prison riots. I don't know exactly what the OS stands for, okay. but it's, it's, it's like. It's a, it's a serious, serious beyond tear gas. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. OS gas. In fact, I think it's actually banned by Geneva now to even be used, but. Wow. It, it, okay. was used, it was used then. Gotcha. And, and I'm not sure if they still use it, but it's a highly irritant gas. Okay. Again, they use it in a lot of like hardcore situations to disperse a crowd. Okay. Wow. But anyways, so they had this huge gas cloud because they were pumping all this OS gas in there, and it was going through my filter. Mm-hmm. Even though I had a P100 on, I had all, all the necessary PPE, but, but because of the quantity of the gas and, and the concentration, my filter became saturated. Next thing you know, I'm breathing in the gas myself. So I'm sitting here, can't see, puking inside my mask <laughs> and, and waiting for them to secure this guy. Finally, the guy came out. I don't know how he came out alive with, yeah. with that much, you know, poked in there. And they took him off and, and that was the excitement for that, for that job. Wow. So. Now you said a P100 mask. Tell us, I've heard of N95s. What's a P100 mask? Yeah, so it comes down to, to mask efficiency and how efficient it is at filtering out particles. Okay. So I believe, a, 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 so what you have is like an N95 or you even hear KN95 masks. Mm-hmm. KN95 means that the U.S. government hasn't certified it, but it came from like Korea or that's, you know, the KN stands for, you know, Korean. Oh, okay. It's just made in another place to a little bit different standards. A P100 is obviously something that fil- fil- you know, filters out much better than an N95. And then below an N95, you've got you know, cloth masks. <laughs> so does 95 mean 95 particulates per something? Or does the 100, what does that? Yeah. It, it, I assume it, it, those are The 95 is basically a term used that it filters out 95% of particulates at a certain size. Okay. And, and, and the P100 is, they call it 100%, but nothing's 100%. So it's really 99.9%, but just for easy, they call it a P100. Okay. And that P stands for particulate. So particulate 100. Okay. The N, I'm not sure what the N stands for, but the 95% means that it, it filters out 95% of most particulates. Now, now when, when the disease hit a year plus ago, everyone wanted those N95 masks because I heard that was the most effective thing available in the marketplace to protect you. And then all of a sudden, overnight, you couldn't find them. People had them, except for eBay had them for 100 bucks a mask. I think before that, they were $1.15 because drywallers used them. Correct. Is, is, that, is that an effective defense against viral-level particles? Somewhat. Okay. So, so I do tell people, you know, N95s are, are, are at least proven to block a, a certain level of particulates. So jumping ahead a little bit, you mm-hmm. hear people argue, the argument for wearing masks is, hey, even though they're not 100% effective, they, they do something. And, and with that, I would agree. The question okay. is, is how much do they do? Mm-hmm. So, so an N95 mask can filter things, I believe, down to about 0.3 microns. Okay. I, you know, there's some debate depending on what mask you have and all of that. But, but 0.3 is generally the rule of thumb for N95s. Well, you know, the COVID, the virus itself is only 0.12 microns. Okay. So, you know, you, you hear people say, well, it stops spit and it stops sneezes and it stops things like that. And, and they're absolutely right. It does stop that. Um, 
but at the end of the day, I don't believe that this virus transferred from, from China over to the United States in a matter of a month because people were spitting in each other's mouths. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's just, it's common sense. I mean, Ebola was transferred mostly on droplets. Okay. And, and the reason why I want to compare this to Ebola is because I was hired by the Department of Defense. I was hired by a major airline and I was hired by a major hospital chain to do Ebola response back in 2014 in the event that, that uh, they had a patient or a passenger or a military person get it. Specifically for the Department of Defense, as they were bringing back soldiers from West Africa, they, they, brought, they took them over there to build hospitals okay. because that's where the Ebola thing was happening. When they brought them back... So, so, so we use military to build hospitals in Africa. Correct. To de- okay, okay uh, that's something kind of new to me as well. I didn't realize that our military was actually working and nation-building purposes along that line. But, I mean, it's good. It's what Americans do, right? We save the world. Yep. And in this case, we have them... Ex- now they're exposed to Ebola conditions or actual Ebola. Absolutely. So, so what happened is they brought them back to Fort Bragg, and they had... They wanted to put them in 21-day isolation before letting them out into the public. Okay. And so it was our responsibility to go in and to not only... We, we had this chemical we were using... It's a silver-based photo, photocatalytic disinfectant chemical. Okay. And, and silver is a very effective, but yet not that harmful disinfectant. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason why that's important is, you know, when you're in a hospital and you're spraying a disinfectant on, let's say, like a, an MRI machine that, that costs a half million dollars, you don't want to destroy the machine by deconning it. Sure. Now, the silver technology was relatively new. It had been approved by the FDA for certain processes in food-grade operations. Like if the, if the bird flu or the pig, pig, you know, pig flu, whatever, broke out at Hormel, uh-huh. you know, this would be the chemical that was used because you could spray it in a food-grade operation and not really harm what you were spraying it on. So listeria is a big one we hear a lot about in dairy plants. This could possibly clean machines that were exposed to a listeria. It absolutely does. Uh, okay. In fact, the CDC's now approved it for Ebola, and it's approved it now for COVID also. So. Okay. Anyways, so going back to my train of thought, we were, we were tasked with studying how effective this was going to be to use in these barracks before they brought the soldiers home. Okay. And then after they brought them home, while they were in isolation for 21 days, if someone caught it, then we would have to go in and decon and keep it from spreading to everyone else that was in tight quarters. Okay. Or do our best at uh, you know, reducing that risk. So before they ever came back, we went in and we took some samples. They're called bioluminescent samples because you can't really test for Ebola on the spot. There's no test that does an instant yes, no Ebola. So what we test for was bacteria, like on door handles and things like that, using a bioluminescence test. Okay. So it's an instant test where we can tell. And then we submitted those samples also to a lab to tell us exactly how much bacteria we have. Then we would go in and decon, and then we would test those surfaces again, and then we would see a certain rate of reduction. Okay. And, and based on that rate of reduction, industrial hygienists and toxic, toxicologists can then say, yes, your decon was effective. You've likely killed you know, most of this virus. Okay. There is, no, there is no protocol out there to kill 100% of a virus and to guarantee decontamination 100%. It's impossible. Okay. But it's about a rate of reduction and reducing risk. So luckily, with all these soldiers back, back, brought back through, we never actually had to perform a decon on Ebola. However, for the hospital chain, I did have to perform one. I had just had my firstborn. It was two weeks before Christmas, I believe 2015. Mm-hmm. 
I won't name the hospital, but it was in D.C. and one of the major ones there. Were you working in D.C. at that time, or were you asked to come there from another location because of your expertise? I was working in North Carolina, and I was asked to go there because of my expertise. Great. And so we had been training for weeks because I wanted to make sure if we were actually called to do an Ebola decon that I had a crew that knew what they were doing. And a lot of how we train is putting on and off personal protection equipment because the PPE, if, if you do your proper evaluation, will protect you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the human element of wearing it is a, a completely different thing. Okay. So even trained hazmat technicians and guys like me, who've done this for years and years and years, you know, we, we, we had to, we had to sharpen our wits a little, hmm. meaning we would go into our shop and we'd spray baby powder all over us while we were dressed up. And then we would make sure when we took things off that we didn't have any baby powder left on our hands, gloves, face, anything like that. Okay. Because that means that we would have touched the outside of the suit or the outside of the mask and then touched ourselves, and that would have been considered an exposure. So, okay. so we did that for weeks and, and made sure we had the right protocols to, to deal with this. And when we got the call, you know, I was in the middle of the night. I grabbed my crew. We had a trailer pre-packed, and it took us a couple hours to get up there. When I got up there, they had the whole floor shut down of the emergency response, or the ER room. Okay. Uh, they had armed guards out front. Legitimate case of Ebola. Legitimate in, case. Inside the hospital. This is not a drill. Correct. Okay. And uh, they had the armed guards out front. And as soon as we walked in those doors and told them who we were and they let us in, there must have been 20, 30 top-rated ER doctors This, this sounds like a Bruce Willis movie pulling up there. I mean, with armed guards, you know, I mean, the hospital's on lockdown. So, sorry, I just yeah. have to... It's yeah. kind of fantastic to think about. It was, very, it was very interesting. And again, this is one of the busiest ERs in D.C., and the whole floor was shut down. Okay. And uh, so, so we walk in, and, and I'm going to tell you the story about PPE uh, because it kind of leads into uh, my discussion about these cloth masks. Sure. Uh, we wear, when, when we do responses, we primarily wear, like this, we wear what's called a full-face uh, respirator or air-purifying respirator. So what it is... Uh, it's, it's a mask that fits around your entire face. Um, it has cartridges on it and you could select cartridges that do different things for viruses and bacteria. Generally, we're just talking about P 100s. Okay. If I'm dealing with chemicals, we could, we could call them stacker cartridges, mm-hmm. but it, they could protect against anhydrous ammonia or chlorine or, you know, different things. They di- they put different things in the filters. Okay. Viruses and things like that. You're not looking to try to stop a chemical. So it's just purely a matter of pore size, uh, you know, mask pore size. Okay. <clears throat> so we were wearing full face respirators with P 100s and, uh, they were air purifying. So I had a little, little fan with a battery in it on my hip that helps push that air through the filter into my face. It just makes it more comfortable to work in. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, so you're not having to suck through that mask all day on an eight hour shift, uh, which is a workout. So, so you would wear the mask theoretically eight hours in a situation or? At times. Okay. Uh, it depends how long they needed us in the room as we were dealing with the waste. Generally on this one, it would be two to three hours at a time. Okay. Uh, and then we'd swap out crews to try to keep fatigue and people sharp. But when we're doing large cleanups, yeah, eight to 10 hours. I've worn it as long as 14, 15. Wow. Okay. Uh, you know, in, in places where you just can't take it off. Uh, you may get certain breaks, but um, every time you take a break and take that mask off, you have to go through a long decon process okay. uh, and things like that. 
when I walked into the ER room, you know, had all these doctors in there, they're all wearing these hoods. And, and, and what it is, it's the same thing that I'm wearing, but it's a hood with a filter in it. And, and it has a, a fan that also pushes air into that hood through the, through the filters. Mm-hmm. The difference between the equipment, the reason why I bring this up is right when I walked in, the doctors looked at me and said, we don't like the fact you're wearing something different than us. Okay. Uh, and they were, they, were, they were a little upset about it. So they're thinking you're unsafe. Possibly. That's right. They're okay. saying, why aren't, why aren't you wearing what we're wearing? Um, I said, A, because this is what we wear every single day. This is what we're comfortable wearing. So my guys are very well trained in it. Uh, B, if your battery runs out, uh, that's pushing the air through your filters. Mm-hmm. Okay, you, you have then, those hoods don't have negative pressure uh, around the face. They don't seal around the face. They just go over the entire head. Okay. So if, if you lose pressure, uh, if they lose that battery power, they lose that pressure, that positive pressure coming in, keeping them safe. Mm-hmm. And now they're unprotected, okay. essentially from anything airborne. So it's fully breached at that point. It's, you're still, you know, you still have some protection because you're wearing a hood. Yeah. But that hood's not sealed. Okay. So any gaps between that hood and your body is now a place for chemicals or gases or viruses to get in. Okay. Um, with a full face respirator, if I lose that, uh, uh, that, that power, that battery, uh, I still have negative pressure because it's sealed around my face. Uh, and that seal uh, creates, you know, it creates a seal. So nothing can sneak in beside. Everything has to go through the cartridge. Sure, it might be a little harder for me to breathe. But at the same time, we wear those all the times without fans and blowers. Uh, so the negative pressure still keeps me safe, still keeps me in a position where, where nothing can get in. And when I brought this up to the doctors, they looked at me and said, well, you're crazy. Look at all these batteries we have over there. They're all fortunate. And they did. They had a rack of like 100 batteries. Okay. I said, I said, that's great. I said, that's great. I said, but look, this is what we're wearing. This is what we're comfortable wearing. And he kind of left it alone for the time. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm thinking of my remote control at my house that goes out. Even though I have a bunch of batteries, I still have to go through four batteries sometimes to get the remote to work. But that's just my little world. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, that's all right. So, so, so you're right here. So, so yeah. this is funny. We're an hour into the response. And, and the doctors are all in the actual room with, uh, well, not all the doctors, but a doctor's in the actual room and they would go in and check on them every now and then, you know, bring out, uh, bring out the soiled, uh, linens and things like that. And he was visibly sick and he was throwing up and doing stuff like that at times. Hmm. And, uh, uh, we had knocked a hole. See ER rooms, some of them use negative pressure rooms. So they seal and the pressure inside the room uh, is different than the pressure outside the room. So it keeps everything in the room. Okay. Now it's kind of like clean rooms for microprocessing, uh, manufacturers Yeah, for computer chips. That's right. You go into a clean room. That's all negative pressure. Okay. Uh, you know, the pressure inside is different than the pressure out so that it keeps things from the outside from coming in. Okay. Uh, e- some ER rooms are also set up like that where they, they have the ability to go negative pressure. So, so he was in a negative pressure room uh, and we busted a hole in the wall of that room into the room next to it. Because to have an active decon, you have to have what's called a three-stage decon. You set up a hot zone, which is your dirty zone. That's okay. where the patient is. You have a decontamination reduction zone, which is the second room that we knocked out. And then you have a room that we would call the support zone. That's the clean room. So uh, most decons involve three-stage decon. Okay. So when the doctors are in the hot zone, when they come out, they bring all their stuff and they go into the contamination reduction zone. That's where we kick in. That was our job. Our job was to take all of his material that he collected from the room, properly package it uh, in that contamination reduction zone, and then also decon the doctor, 
Uh, and then the doctor would go once fully decon from there into the support zone. We would stay in that contamination reduction zone, continuing to manage the waste, and then we would work our way out through the decon zone. And this is the physician who is working with the Ebola patient. Correct. In that environment. Correct. So you're standing in the next room or in the room, and you're the one making sure that Ebola does not escape into the general population. Absolutely. That was our job. All right. And sounds, sounds like an important job. That's right. That's yes. right. So uh, uh, anyways, we're an hour into the response, and, and the doctors were doing a great job, by the way. Um, but sure enough, uh, the battery had died uh, on his hood uh, in the room with the patient. And he kind of looks at the battery, and I know something's going on, and I say, what's going on? Houston, we have a problem. Before I have a chance to even respond, a, a nurse, bare-gloved, came into the room, handed him a, a battery right across the contamination reduction zone everything. So she's in trouble. She's in trouble. I she mean, had she had to leave. She had to be isolated uh, until she tested out. I mean, for the next two weeks, she was basically in isolation. What was her reaction? I mean, she she sees the battery going bad on the doctor. Is that just a normal human reaction, or do you think that's? Uh, I, I'm curious because they go through a lot of testing, a lot of protocols. Uh, I'm assuming she's just trying to preserve the doctor, right? At that point, she's well, going in for the save, or well, so here's the deal. I mean, doctors do go through a lot of testing protocols, but they don't train on on decontamination. They don't train on uh, not to the level that we would. Okay. Uh, so I'm not blaming them. I mean, their focus is on trying to get the patient better. Sure. Uh, they don't spend a whole lot of time training on, you know, uh, reduction of contamination or or decontamination or PPE. Yeah, um, that's your job. Yeah, that's our job. Okay. Yeah, so. I think this nurse may have panicked and thought that the doctor was going to be exposed uh, and then and, and and just, you know, out of nervousness, wasn't thinking and handed it over. And I happened to catch it out of the corner of my eye and, and, and stopped it immediately. But at that point, it was too late. We had to take the nurse and the nurse had to leave and go in isolation for the next couple of weeks. I'm not sure what they did with her at that point, but um, luckily I heard she didn't she didn't get it. OK, um, but, uh, you know, Ebola was a little bit different. The government was a little bit more honest with us there, yeah. Uh, where it didn't really uh, transmit very well or live very long outside the human body. Okay. So, so it did really. In order to catch it, you would really have to get a sneeze or a cough or a, a floating water part, you know, spit particle that you breathe in, you know, to get it. Okay. So uh, pretty pretty close live contact type of scenario. Yeah, I I wouldn't call Ebola really an aerosol. If okay. that makes sense. And I think that's what differentiates it from COVID because COVID is 100% an aerosol okay, by every definition. Hmm. And, and it's an airborne virus, uh, you know, and, and the whole idea that they're trying to link it back to being like Ebola, uh-huh. where it's not airborne and it only exists on, on droplets of water or phlegm, uh, is a complete uh, falsity. Now, as a, as a chemist, is, I believe there's still uh, research being done or do you know that they have conclusively came up with that synopsis? Of yeah. It or? Okay. I, I, I mean, I I think even Dr. Fauci himself would admit right now it's an it's an aerosol. Okay. I mean, now he'll qualify it to say, well, uh, you know, if you block some of the phlegm and you block, you know, the sneezing on peach, you know, you get a reduction. But there's no studies on that. I mean, mm-hmm. the study I think I saw from the Mayo Clinic, uh, and, and and I may not be quoting the Mayo Clinic right, but yeah. from one of these clinics. Uh, what they did is they took these mannequins and they put uh, these cloth masks on them, okay? Mm-hmm. And then apparently they used like a spray bottle and, and they sprayed, you know, water molecules, you know, at the, at the dummy. 
Okay. And then they took the mask off and then would count how many molecules made it through the mask or whatever. That That is the most unscientific study I've ever heard of when it comes to PP. And here's the reason. A, a, a person is not a mannequin. Yeah. Okay. We so move. We not, not only do we move, but we breathe. Okay. Uh, and we breathe at different rates and, 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 and we touch our faces all the time and we readjust our mass a hundred times a day. So you're comparing apples and oranges. You can't even get, uh, uh, you know, a good study. Now, I, I did see a YouTube video that I think a lot of people have seen where people are wearing these cloth masks mm-hmm. and they vape and then they breathe through the cloth mask and you could see that the mask doesn't do anything. It goes yeah. right through it. Well, that's accurate. And, and, and you understand that those smoke particles are like, I think they're 10 times, if not 20 times larger than a COVID particle. Wow. So uh, I, I, I'd have to look again, but they are much, much larger than, than a COVID particle. So cloth masks, when we go to cloth masks, we see two people. I see fashion masks that a lot of people created cottage industries yeah. and that companies are making. You know, I see women with dresses with a matching mask, for yeah. example. Uh, I also see the blue surgical masks that the doctors wear. Are they, in effect, the same thing? They're, in effect, the same thing. At least the blue surgical masks are are made a little bit more consistently. Yeah. But it it all comes down to pore size. Okay. Well, it comes down to two things when it comes to to respiratory protection. That's that's pore size, especially when dealing with virus. Number two is how well does it seal around your face. Okay. Those, Those are kind of the two main things when you're talking about inhalation protection. Uh, when it comes to viruses. Mm-hmm. And and I'll tell you, these cloth masks and the doctor's masks uh, are 80 to 120 microns. Uh, that's how big the pore sizes are okay. between the fibers. And that's if they're unwashed. I mean, that's just on the disposable ones. You talk about these cloth ones. Every time you wash a mask, you loosen up the fibers. They initially shrink, but it degrades it, but then it loosens it up. So they become larger and larger and larger every time you wash them to try to disinfect them. However, the point being, you're talking about... It, the best analogy I have is wearing a cloth mask or a doctor's mask and, and expecting it to protect you against COVID is like trying to stop a sandstorm with a chain link fence. Okay. You know, it's going to go right through it. You might get a particle or two that bounces off, but that's it. Wow. 99.9% is going to make it through that fence. So these these are just not effective is what, is what I'm hearing you say. Correct. Yeah, it's So it's a... Uh... Then, then, I mean, we have this huge scientific community, this huge medical community. Um, why are we doing this? <clears throat> I, and I don't mean to take you away from no, what you were saying. No, but, I, I'm going to back up real quick on yeah, a little bit as to what that, they're. That's tr- fine because that's a whole other section. Yeah, and I want another section that we I, do have to talk about. But agreed. I, I mean, my mind just keeps wanting to ask that question. I'm sure anyone listening to this wants to immediately ask that question. Agreed. But let's go. But but let's do stay on that. Let's talk about particulate size. Let's talk about effectiveness, efficacy. Um, how safe are these things? Um, and then we're going to get into that. Yeah. So 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 furthering on my discussion about how how effective these masks are, the the the, the government right now, and I, I'll even say the media wants us to believe uh, that this thing is spread through uh, water particles. You know, mm-hmm. sneezing, coughing, fleming. Um, I, I wholeheartedly don't believe that being involved in some of the responses that I've done, uh, looking at the data out there, listening to the different scientists talk about this, understanding the, the size of this particle and, and the fact, the very fact that it spread so quickly, so fast. I don't know if you've ever seen that map when you look up how many COVID cases or not, how you see those dots everywhere, right? Oh yeah. Evenly was... spaced throughout that within two months of this thing uh, entering the country, it was around the, uh, the entire United States. It was- You had dots everywhere. Unreal. 
So, so you got to ask yourself, is this because everyone is coughing and sneezing in each other's faces? Is that, is that why, how it did it in two months? I've never even heard of anything going that quickly. It'd be interesting to get a mathematician in and talk about the probability levels of person-to-person transmission at that speed. I'm sure there have been some studies somewhere about that, but in terms of being able to connect, not just a person shaking hands with one another, but to actually shake hands and transmit a particle simultaneously, because I'm sure that, number one, you have to have the particle. Number two, it has to transmit in a relatively perfect environment for it to go. Um, that, that's mind blowing, I guess, in and of itself in many respects, but, uh, okay. It happened. We, we saw it happen. We know it happened somehow, some way. That's right. Yeah. And it's also, you, you know, you got to look at, at, at certain things. And again, me not being a toxicologist or a certified industrial hygienist, um, I'm not hundred percent certain about this, but the fact that it exists in Florida, just as it exists up in Ohio, where, um, you know, a lot of times viruses, when they live outside the body, are, are killed by sunlight. They're killed by temperature. Mm-hmm. Uh, they survive better in the winter. Uh, they don't survive better in the summer. This thing seems to, to to be an aerosol that is extremely survivable outside of the body. Yeah. And and, and so all these facts point to me, at least to me, uh, to thinking we're not being telling the truth. This isn't spreading from people coughing and sneezing in each other's mouths. You just you don't get that sort of rapid spread uh, that quickly. To that many people, uh, because everyone's coughing at each other, just doesn't happen. Hmm. Okay. So, so, so that's that's item number one. Number two is, you know, so these masks not only are they ineffective. I already told you about pore size; they don't seal. So, in order for me to wear the PPE that I wear, when I told you about the negative pressure when I wear a full face, yes. Even if I wear a half face, OSHA, the very agency Biden's trying to use to mandate uh, these masks. Uh, first of all. They have never approved cloth masks for anything in the past. In fact, they say they're completely irrelevant, no matter what the contaminant is. If I have to deal with asbestos, everyone knows asbestos. Yes. Asbestos is a very large particle. I mean, in terms compared to a virus particle. Okay. Um, Hundreds, if not thousands of times larger than COVID. And they make you the minimum you can wear when dealing with asbestos is a P100 mask. Not only a P100, you have to wear eye protection, Tyvek suit, gloves, all that sort of stuff. So that's the minimum level of protection against asbestos. Wow. Which is a hundred, if not a thousand times larger. Now I get it. Mm-hmm. Not everyone in the country can, can wear that every day. We don't have the resources for it. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, giving people false confidence in wearing masks that don't work is uh, even more dangerous. Okay. Uh, one, of, one of the things I try to tell even trained technicians when, when I'm teaching a 40-hour class is that if you get too comfortable in believing that your PP is going to protect you, it, it becomes counterintuitive, it becomes a problem on the response. The PPE is only one level of protection. We do everything that we can before putting on that PPE to mitigate the environment. Okay. And the reason this is important is because we spend half the time as a country focusing on uh, indoor air filtration, purification and air disinfection, which is relatively cheap, mm-hmm. uh, we would we would see a far better uh, 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 reduction in spread. So so um, jumping in, Joel Miller is our guest on fill in the blank. We are talking about the efficacy of masking as it relates to protecting you from biohazardous materials that could be in the air or other type of areas. So very, very interesting conversation we're having. So 
we're talking about indoor air air quality, and I know high rises, New York City, for example, is one of the questions that's out there. What about HEPA air filters? Uh, is this HEPA air filter system, uh, if you have knowledge of it, a good quality item that would protect a household? You know, it, it is. And, 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 and again, I'm going to qualify my statement here because uh, my personal opinion is that COVID is not going away, uh, that we're all going to get it. Okay. Um, and uh, we're going to have to live with it for a very long time. Uh, I don't think many scientists out there believe now that we're going to stop COVID, uh, you know, in its entirety. Even even the CDC is coming out and starting to give indications that oh, we're going to have to live with this. Yeah, it doesn't uh, seem like we're going to stop the stop the the the, per, the perpetration of this thing into society. It's it's too survivable. Yeah. Um, you know, if it was less survivable, I would I would say, yeah, there might be a chance there, but it's just too good at transmitting, too survivable, um, which I won't even get into in this podcast, but leads me to believe that it was created. A, you know, it wasn't a pangolin and a bat, you know, French kissing. That's not how this happened. Uh, you know, the okay. fact. Yeah. But anyways, go, going back to uh, the indoor air quality. Uh, HEPA filters are uh, efficient at circulating air. That's one element of air filtration. Uh, most of the HEPA filters you want to make sure are like 99, 99.7% efficient. Okay. The problem is with your regular household, if you put in an air, air filter that's more efficient at filtering things, then it slows down air circulation. Okay. So, so you kind of have two things at play here. You want to get air in and out as quick as possible when you're trying to, trying to filter a room. Uh, you also want that air to pass through uh, a filter that's effective at capturing the particles. Okay. They, those two things kind of battle each other because the more efficient your filter becomes, the less you can push through it. It okay. makes sense? Yeah, it does make sense. So, so uh, you know, um, so for the households, having, having you know, air fil- that, that'll all help. Absolutely. Because it is an airborne virus and, and getting air to circulate and go through filtration is a good thing. I think it's schools and industrial settings and whatnot. Uh, there's relatively simple things that can be done to to increase airflow filtration, and then you can use things like UV lights and things like that to uh, disinfect. Also, it's not going to stop it, but but if we spent our time focused a little bit more on that than trying to put masks on everybody, I think we would see uh, a slower spread. Okay. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we're trying to figure out how to live with this disease now. It seems like more so than how we get rid of this disease. And if we shut down our economy, for example, we don't have the truck drivers coming back to work to deliver the goods to the stores. So the government's uh, now in a pickle. I don't know that we have a solution that is perfect, but you know what we need to understand is where we are with good qualified information from good qualified people who have experience, not just not just book learning on what's going on out there. So you know, very very. Uh, useful and interesting to hear what you're talking about out here. So thank you. No, thank you. Um, so so getting back to it then, the cloth masks, um, you're saying, and I'm going to paraphrase back, the cloth mask is pretty much useless to the tune of, is it fair to ask you to put a percentage? Or Yeah, I mean, if you think about, again, the 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 you know, the government, Dr. Fauci, want to talk about these spit particles and mm-hmm. phlegm particles that are much larger um, and I don't believe that that's how this thing is spreading. I think it's spreading as an aerosol, which okay. I think most people would, would believe. That means that it's spreading uh, and, and that the virus size is around 0.12 microns. Okay. The mask that you're wearing 
are these cloth masks or the doctor's masks are 80 to 120 microns. So anything, uh, you think about that size comparison, mm-hmm. 0.12 to 80, and a micron is one millionth of a meter. Okay. So so you're talking about extremely, extremely small small particles here. And, and, and again, you know, you're putting up a chain link fence to stop a sandstorm. Are you stopping a piece or two? Possibly. It might bounce off. It might stick to the chain link fence, which causes a whole nother problem. The negative side of masking. Okay. So, so, uh, but, but at the end of the day, it's a virus. If 98% of the virus is getting through, it's pointless. Okay. Now I'm, I want to talk about the medical side of masking, which is very concerning where it might actually be doing more harm than good. Uh, what's happening is when you wear a mask, uh, any sort of mask, uh, you, you're breathing air in and out of it. And, and, and especially these cloth masks, they don't seal very re- re- well around your face. Okay. In fact, they don't seal around your face at all if you have a beard. And I haven't heard any mandates go on. I have to shave my beard if I wear a full face respirator. I keep a razor and shaving cream in my car. It's pretty fashionable today to wear a beard for guys, young that, men in particular. That, so. That's right. So, so, so imagine you're wearing this beard and you've got a half inch gap around your side because the hair is keeping that, keeping that mask from even touching your face. Hmm. And cloth masks aren't meant to seal around the face. Okay. Um, so at the end of the day, you know, you're fidgeting with this mask because you're wearing it now for eight hours a day. And, and, and you've got to take it on and off and on and off. And if you touch the inside of your mask while you take it on and off, you've just contaminated that inside of the mask. And now you're breathing whatever you just put in there, Okay. you know, the entire time. So it, it's not just the PPE selection. It's how you wear it. Does that okay. make sense? It, it, it makes total sense. Yeah, I and, mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, that was, that's why I trained on the Ebola thing with baby powder to make sure that we can take on and off our PPE in a proper way that we weren't going to create a bigger harm to ourselves. So if people, uh, so one of the things I heard about was something called viral overload. And it's the idea that if you are exposed to too much of the virus at a given moment in time, that your body actually can't fight off with whatever natural immunity levels you have, the viral content that's coming into your body. Because our bodies are, they're, they're built to actually fight off bad things. Uh, so the possibility that what I'm hearing is you have the virus. It's now because your hand went inside your mask, sitting on right inside your mouth. I mean, so now you're breathing in an activated virus, opposed to having it on the outside. Is that uh, is that a possibility? Yeah. Well, yes. And, and you're also creating through the moisture that you're breathing in and out every day. You are create. You know, some of that moisture sticking on your mask. I mean, that's why these masks become damp. You're creating an environment to catch things. Okay. Not just going out, but coming in. You know, so if it comes around the side that's not sealed in, it sticks to that little wet part that you have uh, in front of you, you're breathing in and out and in and out and in and out all that time, and it's stuck in the mask with you. So now you're breathing in anything that's on the inside of the mask. But but going back, you, you, you told me to give a percentage, well, and, or, or if, uh, I, if I could. A, a, a yeah. guesstimate. I mean, we can't hold you to anything because there's well, no... I mean, just based on particle size alone, and not even taking into consideration that cloth masks don't seal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, what are you, 0.12 microns to 80 to 120 microns? I would say less than 1%. Wow. You're, you're stopping less than 1% of that virus. You have to get lucky that that virus is going to hit one of those fibers, call it a goalpost. You're kicking a, a football through a goalpost, and you're trying to hit the goalpost, or you know it's randomly throwing. You're just trying to get one of those to hit the goalpost. Everything else goes right by. And so you're breathing it all in. So so you're not reducing the dose by any measurable means or any means that would be effective. So if we so so if a person under the age, a school age child, 
gets the virus, we see that their chances of survivability are the highest of pretty much any demographic segment that's out there. So going back to school districts such as New Albany, are the masks working? Are they lowering the incident of contraction of the virus mathematically from what you know as a person with a degree in chemistry? Absolutely not. Uh, In fact, they had a Board of Education meeting uh, last week that they published the new numbers, and and the cases are actually going up, uh, and they're definitely not being reduced, and they've had the mask mandate in place for several weeks now. Okay. So, um, you know, (laughs) I think the proof's in the pudding. You would think there would be some sort of reduction if you had no mask mandate, then you force a mask mandate. Mm -hmm. To see the numbers go up and, 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 and have no one acknowledge that, well, wait a second. This, this didn't reduce the numbers at all. It just, it dumbfounds me. Is, is there a possibility that because children are going home or getting on the school bus and not wearing their mask, maybe say on the school bus? Well, they're, they're actually mandated to wear it on the school bus federally. So okay. they have to wear it. Even when there weren't mask mandates, they had to wear it on the school bus. There are other variables that could come into play. So the kids are reading these federal regulations and complying 100%. Yeah, 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 that's true. <laughs> I know that's another, that's a whole other issue of, yeah. is practicality of what we're asking people to do. Yeah. But but go ahead. Yeah, well, you know, going back to it, there are other variables that come into play, but you would think you would see at least some sort of reduction by making everyone wear a mask where before you weren't. Okay. If they were effective at all, you would see some sort of reduction. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think you have to be, even be very scientific to, to understand that. Let me ask you as well, and I'm, again, it's a speculation question. I watch high, high school, college football, concerts are going on all over the country. Uh, indoor and outdoor, and they do not seem to be affecting the total numbers of viral increases. A, is that fair to say? And B, if not, why? Well, first of all, I don't, I don't believe in any of the statistics that are being published. Um, if you look at the way as a scientific person and someone who, who, who has been involved in a lot of science, okay. uh, the, the studies and the way they collect this information uh, is all over the board, and it's not a scientific process. I, I agree. I mean, I love statistics. I like economics. Those are two things I look for. And from a statistical standpoint, the information, the data points that I receive and that I see are not consistently reported in the same format. And I'm always questioning why are elements missing? Why do we not see the complete picture? And we have some statisticians that give us a lot of information, some very, very reputable people. And once again, they can't make heads or tails because they say they don't get a consistent flow of information in the same format. Well, and, that, and that's why, bringing it back to the masks, uh, I think the statistics out there can be used, and they are being used for political purposes. Okay. Um, and there's just there's too much uh, variability mm-hmm. uh, to to have repeatable studies out there that say, oh yes, this is working, this is not working. So what do you do in, in the absence of data like that? How do you make decisions as a person? Well, as I told you, you go back to the basics. Yeah, you got to look at cloth mass size, the pore size of mass, okay. and the size of the virus. It's that simple. And the fact it doesn't seal, the fact that the 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 mass that is meant to filter out the virus is thousands, if not millions, of times larger than the virus itself. Okay. Um, you know, uh, I, I hate to bring this point out, and you might edit this, uh, edit this later, but, 
you know, uh, you know, you don't see people walking around wearing filter diapers. No. Uh, you know, people flatulate several times a day. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, with, if you're infected with the virus, uh, I, I, I've been told that it gets inside your track and everything like that. And that's one way it could spread. Uh, genes don't stop it. You still smell the odor uh, because the particle sizes are much larger than what can stop uh, the, the size of, 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 of those particles. So it, it's simply a matter of filtration. You don't have to have a science degree to understand that. Okay. And, and, and I think that's one of the things I'd like to get across is how these scientists can get up there and push something that's so obviously false. Yeah. Uh, just by the normal common thinking of this, so obli- obviously false, it dumbfounds me. What, what can't, do you have any ideas in your mind as to what we can do proactively in Ohio, primarily, that's our, the Midwest, um, to deal with this or, or in general in society, in, in American society? What do we do? I mean, I'm, I'm hearing that masks don't work. Now what? My opinion is there is nothing we can do. Uh, I mean, to stop this thing. So herd herd immunity. It's it's going to spread. Yeah, herd immunity. People are going to get it. Now, if if you are at risk, uh, if you're at risk and and people, you know, they found obesity is one of those things that be at risk for, obviously, old age. Okay. Um, Other things, uh, you know, such as cancer and and weakened immune systems. You know, I do think that you could wear N95s, P100s, if you could get your hand on them. You know, you could wear nitrile gloves. You could do things like that to protect. In fact, my parents... Uh, who live in Colorado in their 70s, mm-hmm. um, you know, they they wear N95s, they wear, uh, you know, gloves, uh, they do things like that, and they're fully vaccinated. But I get it. I get it. In, in that population, uh, you're the one who needs to protect yourself, and you're trying to do it the best way you can. N95s will offer better protection. You may block 30 40 50% of the viral load okay. based on pore size. Um, whereas the cloth masks are just way too loose. I mean, they just, the pore sizes are way too large. So, so from a PP perspective, that's one thing you could do. Mm -hmm. And, and then from a, a situation like schools or workplaces, uh, I think filtration and, and air purification to a certain extent, but then you have to start asking yourself, am I killing everything that we're getting exposed to? And is that going to have a long-term negative effect? Uh, you know, they, according to the CDC, there was one flu death in Ohio last year. I, I, it might have been for the entire country. One pediatric flu I, death. I, I saw those numbers, and it was, uh, uh, it, it was astonishingly low. Yeah. I mean, so, so does you anyone even measure it? Yeah, and what they're telling us, they're saying, "Oh, well, the masks are working. They're stopping the flu." Wrong again. Uh, you know, again, the flu is much smaller than the pore size of the mask. If it was simple to stop the flu with wearing a cloth mask, why wouldn't we have done it 10 years ago and saved millions of lives? Uh, that was my question. Or, or the common cold. We could have That's eradicated right. both had we taken a serious attempt at it, let alone, uh, you know, the, the number of flu vaccine shots that have been dosed out. Um, you know, and, and talking with a lot of people in the medical community, um, there's, you know, they, they certainly have a number of questions on that. But that's a different topic for a different day. It is. It yeah. is. So, okay. Um, anything else that you want to add to what you've shared with us? This has been some amazing information that I think the average person has not contemplated at the level of depth that you, a trained chemist, have done. Yeah, I, I would just say with someone, and, and I'll go into this other point, you know, obviously I have a high respect for doctors. They've, they've saved a lot of lives. They've uh, done a lot of good things for me and all of that. But people need to understand who they're getting their information from. Okay, um, 
you know, doctors in the ER, again, they don't go to school to study PPE. They don't go to school, uh, you know, to study hazardous chemicals or filtration or things like that or decontamination necessarily. They may have a, a slight class in it here or there or, 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 or some briefs or updates. But, you know, when you hear all these people come out and, and, and speak, say, hey, well, I'm a doctor. You should wear a mask. You know, I asked them, OK, well, what's your what's your experience with masks? Do you even know the different types of masks that are out there? Do you know what a level A, level B, level C, level D is? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, do you know the pore size of the mask you're wearing? You know, do you have to see? And they don't because they're not trained in these things. So, so what's happening is you're getting a lot of people who claim to be experts that are saying wear these things, and they're not experts. Mm-hmm. Um, I would be happy to debate Dr. Fauci on the efficiency of cloth masks. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I would invite it. If he'd sit down next to me and tell me why he thought that cloth masks were, were going to reduce things. Uh, because you just boil it back to the simple principles. The yes. size of the holes are way larger than the virus itself. You know, so. there was uh, an article the Columbus Dispatch ran in the last, uh, I want to say, 18 months. But on page one, they were actually quoting, when we were trying to figure out what this disease was, a doctor of veterinary medicine. And... That was their that was their resource, their trained professional resource for the information that they were backing up in the newspaper and giving that to, you know, three million people who who their paper has a, a reach to, to gauge the information. And I thought to myself, okay, now we're using veterinarians, and God bless veterinarians; they take care of our animals, they keep our food supplies. That's safe, right, which is another thing, but. We're talking about human diseases, and they were not doing a juxtaposition as to whether or not this thing jumps from animals and back and forth. It was simply an article that was talking about a human response to this virus. And I thought, my gosh, the press will go anywhere to get any storyline backed up that they possibly can. And I feel violated as a, as a citizen to that degree uh, because I can, uh, I can make a lot of determinations with a good degree of accuracy if you will give me honest, clean, fair data points that I can assess. Yeah, so. to, to further that point, I did an interview a couple months ago with Channel 10 News. Okay. Uh, they interviewed three uh, what they called parents from New Albany. Mm-hmm. Um, two of them obviously were for the mask mandate, me being against it. When they selectively, I, I call that a fair fight. You versus two people. Yeah. That's right. And it wasn't even a debate scenario. It was just a quick clip on on the nightly news saying, "Hey, New Albany's fighting over masks." And when they introduced the other two people, they happened to be doctors, uh, ER doctors. Okay. Um, and the ER doctors, you know, were claiming that these masks are efficient. We need to wear them up, whatever. And when they introduced me, they said, "Concerned parent from New Albany." Even though I explained to them, I'm a hazmat chemist. I've been doing emergency response and decontamination <laughs> for 20 years. I dealt with live Ebola. I've dealt with anthrax, uh, which is another story. Okay. Uh, I, I did a lot of the D. De- I worked for the company that did the decontamination uh, at the uh, at the uh, postal facility and the congressional building when we got attacked by anthrax. Uh, you know what? Let's go ahead and talk about that and see if we can st- splice that in. That's a good story. It is. It is. So, so, you know, back when we were attacked by anthrax, the, the, the large attack that everyone heard about, about the, uh, the, the letter uh, that went to the Capitol building post office and, and then went through the, the mail sorting center. Um, I was working for the company that was hired by another company that was hired by another company to actually physically go in and get the anthrax uh, out of the building, okay. uh, decontaminate it. So the first thing we had to do is go retrieve the letter. 
and, and, and the letter itself, you know, I've got a picture of it. Uh, Death to America, take your penicillin now. Uh, we were working with the FBI. And so, you know, our, we were the guys actually in the building doing the decon. This was D.C. Rayburn office building? Uh, th- this is the Capitol building. Oh, the Capitol Yeah, building. the actual okay. Capitol building. And wow. then the mail sorting center uh, outside of the Capitol okay. uh, that, that was used to sort mail before it gets to the Capitol building. Okay. Keep, keep, keep going. I'm going to ask yeah. you a couple questions. Yeah. So, so our job was to decontaminate all the surfaces, all the HVAC, all the ducts, uh, everything like that uh, that could potentially have anthrax spores in it. Uh, okay. that, that were released from the letter that was opened or went through the mail sorting center and, and the Capitol building. Uh, so, so I have experience with, with anthrax also and decontamination there and uh, the protocols. And I could assure you we weren't wearing cloth masks. Uh, we were wearing uh, very highly protective, what's called level B, uh, and some people were in level A PPE, which is a full oxygen tank on your back. You're breathing supplied air, an SCBA. You're in what's called a moon suit, basically. Uh, that has positive pressure inside the suit. Okay. Uh, so you kind of look like a giant marshmallow. Yeah. Um, and that positive pressure is keeping any gases that could even go through the pores of your suit to get into you. Wow. Uh, so that was that was for the hottest area. We got a back grade down to level B where it was just the SCBA and then a suit that's not positive pressure. Um, but uh, that was a very interesting response, correct? Uh, how big is anthrax? How, uh, we're talking about particle size. Is that uh, like a viral size? No, it's it, 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 it. The anthrax spores are much larger than COVID. Okay. Uh, I don't know the exact micron size, but they are much larger than COVID. COVID's very tiny compared to uh, anthrax. And you still would not wear a cloth mask or a surgical mask. Wouldn't even think that. about it. And would it, you think about an N95 mask? Wouldn't even think about it. Okay. Yeah. P, P100 mask. No. Okay. Uh, in fact, OSHA, by, by evaluation and their criteria, the decision-making we have to go through on what PPE to wear, uh, at a minimum, given, given the threat level and, 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 and the best products we have out there, uh, level, level C would be the best or the minimum, okay. level B or level A, and that's a full-face respirator, P100 cartridge, things like that. Wow. So, um, yeah, I, I, and that's the crazy thing is that OSHA is now being dictated to force cloth mask mandates. Mm-hmm. And they're the very agency that never before in the history of OSHA has ever said a cloth mask is effective at filtering anything. Wow. In fact, they've, they've come out several times and don't recommend cloth masks for the usage of anything, uh, any chemical we respond to, no matter how harmful it is. So another question I have is if the masks are not as effective as we have been led to potentially believe, and I use the word potentially, uh, because we we aren't making on this podcast necessarily uh, authentic uh, uh, authenticated uh, statements. But what happens if people in their mind are wearing the masks and believing that the masks are giving them complete or a high level, let's just say a high level of protection? Yeah. So so what we're talking about, and in my industry, this is one of the number one hazards we face. It's called a false sense of security. I talked about it a little earlier about having false confidence in your PPE. But in the case of these cloth masks that, that I've just told you why uh, on the very simple letter, level are ineffective, uh, when you get the general public wearing something that they think is protecting them, even if they think it's protecting them a little bit and understand it's not protecting them a lot, they change their behaviors, not only consciously, but subconsciously. Uh, so, you know, in wearing a mask, I see people be riskier. They're going to go to more places. They're going to be around more people. And I'm not advocating shut places down at all mm-hmm. because I already told you before, I don't believe we're stopping this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
at the end of the day, this false sense of security is very dangerous uh, because now you're wearing a mask and you're going to do behaviors, whether consciously or subconsciously, that you normally would not do when it comes to hygiene. You may not wash your hands as much when you get in the car because you say, well, I'm not breathing it in. You, you've totally neglected any of your eye protection or your other surfaces. You know, your eyes are a porous uh, and, and, and moist substance. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if, if the virus is airborne and it comes into contact with the liquids in your eye, it's likely getting into your body that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there are things that uh, the false sense of security uh, by wearing these masks actually would have a, an internegative effect because now you're going to do activities. You're going to be around places or people uh, that, that you normally might, uh, be a little bit more cautious about, uh, because you're wearing a mask and thinking, well, this is going to stop some of it, uh, you know, and, and whatnot. And then also, you know, the untrained user. So, you know, when you're wearing a mask, you have to be trained not to touch your face a million times. You put something on your face that's uncomfortable, mm-hmm. especially being a child and you're taking it on and off and you're fidgeting with it 10 times a day. Yeah. You've now created a bigger hazard than the PPE can protect against itself. So um, I think a false sense of security by mandating these masks is, is a very real thing that should be studied. Uh, not only should it be studied, but taken into consideration when pushing these mask mandates. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, uh, behaviorists look at a lot of things, and I, you bring up an interesting question. If a kid in second grade is not normally putting their hands near their mouth, but they are now on a regular basis with the mask, uh, the proximity of them getting uh, liquid spittle or whatever on their hands, uh, you, you've opened up a new doorway from a behavior modification that wasn't there before. So absolutely. Okay. All right. Thank you. Well, um, with that, Joel Miller has been our guest. Uh, I'd love to talk more and more and actually go into speculative things with you at some point, but that's probably another talk for another day. If we're still on the air after this one is published, uh, I hope that we are able to still bring honest information to the people and bring people who have good educations from good institutions that can help us make uh, good decisions about what we're learning and what we're hearing so we can protect our own lives and take a level of personal responsibility. So, Joel Miller, uh, thank you for joining us, and stay tuned for the next Fill in the Blank podcast. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks for giving us your time to listen. You've been listening to Fill in the Blank with Sean Parker, where we talk about the issues of politics and the geopolitical marketplace, as well as economics. If you like our channel, please subscribe to us at Fill in the Blank on YouTube, and be sure to listen every week as we come back to you with some of the most thought-provoking people of the day. And learning is always the key to what we're trying to do.